wanted to, before we start, I did want to mention one thing that, that you'd be, you'd be, uh, you need to know, you'd be glad to know. Um, a fellow that has been with our ministry on staff here for 13 years, Landon Ditto, um, has resigned from uh, Grace of Anne. He's going to be moving to Birmingham to pursue a career down there. Landon uh, uh, is much loved by so many of us. He had been integral in the life of our church as the junior high minister, the senior high minister, and up on stage and in different teaching opportunities. So we appreciate Landon for many of the things that he's done. I just wanted you to know, and the, the, the session wanted you to know, it's no secret, that he is going to be moving to Birmingham. And, and I'm sure that he and Jess would love for us to continue to remember them in our prayers uh, because sometimes transitions can uh, uh, be pretty difficult. So anyway, that's why he's not here, is because he's moved on to other things. Landon Ditto. Okay. Now, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, and eventually we're going to get to some verses there. And really a simple outline for the sermon is there's going to be an introduction and then we're going to talk about the background of the, uh, of the passage, uh, which is actually 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 9. And then we're going to talk about what it means and then how to really apply it. So pretty simple outline and we ought to be out of here by about quarter to two or something. So there we go, you know. Here's an accident report that I think will relate, hopefully, to some of us and it'll relate to uh, what we're going to talk about today. This is, a, this is an accident report I pulled out of my, my files in my office. I'm a bricklayer by trade, and on the day of the accident, I was working alone on the top of a 10-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered I had about 500 pounds of bricks left over. And rather than carrying them down by hand, I decided to lure them to the ground in a barrel by using a pulley, which fortunately was attached to the side of the building at the 10th floor. Securing the rope at ground level... I went to the roof, loaded the 500 pounds of bricks, then went back down to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in Block 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Well, needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. At the vicinity of the fifth floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured skull and broken collarbone. I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 30 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11 of the accident reporting form. As you might imagine, I begin a rapid descent down the side of the building. And in the vicinity of the fifth floor, I met that barrel coming up again. And this accounts for the two fractured ankles and lacerations in my leg and lower body. The second encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks, and fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks, in pain and unable to stand, watching the empty barrel ten stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind, and I let go of the rope. How about that accident report? I don't know. I would ask, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like a, you've been in a similar situation as that bricklayer 
Well, based on the number of condolence cards that we sign in the office and what shows up on the prayer list and just conversations in the hall, it's obvious that many of us at one time or another has even been in a, either been in one of those situations or know somebody who has. Maybe you have. Maybe you're there now. Maybe in some form or fashion, whether it's in your job or whether it's in your personal life or relationships or medical issues or family issues or parenting situations with our parents and with, with parenting our children, a lot of different circumstances and situations and just the kind of stuff that occurs in our lives, you know, and we're in the, we're in, we're in the middle of those. It's so easy for a believer to think, you know, and we really are, we're trying to walk like the, like the, the Lord wants us to walk and we're trying to please him. We're trying to obey him and follow him. We're trying to to serve him. And a lot of times we think, you know, I've got a clear conscience. I don't know anything that I'm doing wrong. It just seems like my life ought to be smooth sailing. I'm trying to do the right thing. But it isn't always smooth sailing. So the question is, how do we handle it? What do we pray? Where's the peace? This morning we're going to talk a little bit about a bricklayer, a skilled master bricklayer, who laid the foundation of the gospel to many churches, including the church in Corinth. And much of his life, the Apostle Paul, was found in circumstances and situations kind of like this bricklayer. What would he say laying down watching that barrel above him? What would he do in difficult circumstances? How would he handle it? In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, we get a little bit of an insight. He went to the Lord. He went to him for help. And this is what the Lord told him. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made strong in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Well, let's do a little background. Let's see how he got to that point. What's this all about when we come to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians? Well, among the other things that were going on in Corinth, you know, it was, a, it was a prosperous, wealthy city. It was a city with a lot of decadence. They had temple worship that involved prostitutes. There's a lot of commerce there. There's a lot of trade. There was a church there, and the church had a difficult time of the members uh, uh, separating themselves from their pagan lifestyle. And so Paul had a lot of issues to address. But in this particular portion of Scripture, what is going on is that when Paul left, These false teachers came in right behind him, and they were seeking to discredit Paul. I mean, they were were slick, they were smooth, they were ear-tickling, and they had sort of a form of the gospel that that, uh, uh, really was a combination of various religions, and it really wasn't the gospel at all. It was a misguided brand. And in an attempt to come in and build themselves up, they sought to discredit and undermine the Apostle Paul and it was working. They were claiming that, hey, they were the true apostles. I mean, not Paul. I mean, look at him. I mean, Paul's kind of a, just a scrawny, weak-looking guy. I mean, he's bold. Oh, yeah, he's bold when he's not with you. But when he's with you, he's not very bold at all, and he's a bad speaker. I mean, you would think that a person that's an apostle that's really been anointed by God would, would have a silver tongue. He would be a great communicator like, like we are the false apostles were saying. 
On top of that, look at all the trials and look at the struggles. Look at the difficulties that he has gone through. You would think if he was really an apostle, that God would bless him and protect him from all these difficult things that he's been through. And it looks like God's not blessing him at all. So what they were doing is they were going to the people that, that, that Paul had given his life to, that loved, he had shared the gospel with, he was trying to build them up in their faith, and they are undermining him by questioning his integrity, they're questioning his authority, they were trashing him to these precious people to whom he had given his life for the sake of the gospel. So then when we get to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul decides to respond. He says, bear with me while I partake in a little bit of foolishness. Bear with me while I boast. Now he calls boasting foolishness because a servant of the gospel never really has to boast, never has to do what these false, false apostles were doing, never really have to build themselves up. But he's boasting anyway for the sake of the gospel message. He was saying, you listen to these guys boasting and you bear with them, so why don't you bear with me in this foolishness so that I can boast a little bit for the sake of, his, of the gospel? He says, let me give you my resume. So he gives him his resume, and it's not like a normal resume. Usually when you put together a resume, if you've ever done that or if you're one who reads a lot of resumes, you know, they're, they're, they're all the good stuff. I've got some resumes in my, in my office from people who over the years have applied for jobs. And you would think from their resume, everybody, they, they sound like wonderful, perfect people. Some of the resumes are so good that it raises other questions. Like, you can't be this good. If you were this good, you could run for the office of Pope or something like that. I mean, it's just that good. But Paul's resume was quite different. And it gives us a picture of Paul's life. And some of the things he says in chapter 11 tell us that his life was indeed a struggle almost all the time. You know, he worked hard. He worked himself to the bone. He was in prison for his faith. Frequently, he was beaten with rods. And when he wasn't being beaten with rods, he was beaten with, with whips. He was shipwrecked. He's hanging to a board, onto a board in the middle of the sea, adrift for, for at least a day. He was in danger of robbers. It says that. You know, if you think about it, there were times when he was collecting from churches so that he could bring the collection to other needy churches. And when he's carrying that bag of money, he was on roads that were frequented by robbers because that was the only way to travel. And on top of that, there were Jews who were seeking to get him and do to him what he had done to Christians before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Once it even says that he was stoned by an angry mob, that he was, he was preaching or he was talking to people and the mob got upset with him and so they dragged him out of the city and when you were stoned in that day, you were buried up to the waist in the ground so your waist up was above the ground and the mob would gather around you and throw stones at you until you were unconscious and left for dead. Paul had been stoned to the point of being unconscious and they all walked away because they just figured he was dead. Get that picture. All this happened to Paul. And plus, he was hungry. He was thirsty. He was suffering from time to time from exposure. And on top of this, it says that he has the pressure from dealing with all of the churches. So that's what he was going through. We could see how he maybe could relate just a little bit to this bricklayer, but it doesn't stop there. 
When you get into chapter 12, as he's continuing his resume with all that's going on, that his life is on the line, he tells of a personal encounter that he had with Jesus. And actually, if you look at the New Testament, this happened anywhere from four to six times in his life. Perhaps because of the life that God had called him to, the struggles and the suffering and the brokenheartedness from being rejected by the ones that you love whom you've given your life to. Perhaps the Lord saw fit to minister to Paul through a personal audience with Jesus Christ. And he had several of these. So he's talking about one of these instances when we get to verse 7 of chapter 12, as if he doesn't have enough going on. And let's look at what happens. What does the Lord do? Look with me at verse 7. During this personal encounter, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. With all that he was going, going, uh, had going on in his life, all these wonderful encounters, and yet the Lord saw fit to give him a, a, a harassment to keep him from being conceited, to keep him humble. And one thing that shows is how important it is to the Lord that we as believers live a life in humility. But the word for thorn is really stake. And when it says thorn in the flesh, that word in could equally mean of. And this stake, uh, and so when we think of this picture of a thorn, we naturally think that, you know, if somebody walking through the, wo- the forest and all of a sudden they brush up against a thorn bush, or working in the rose garden and all of a sudden they they hit one of the rose bushes and they get pricked with a thorn. This was a stake. A stake in the word is the type of stake that you use for impaling people. And the picture we get is one from back in the day, back in his time, when <clears throat> they were plowing a field and they had the animal that was doing the plowing. If he was to get out of line, they would have these stakes uh, close to the back of his leg. And when he would get out of line, they would hit him so that he would be goaded with these stakes and the pain would cause him to stay in line. And that's kind of the idea that we get of what was going on, that the Lord was doing this to keep him humble. And we don't know exactly what the thorn was. We don't know. Some people say it was a a medical condition. Some say it was an eye ailment. Uh, Some say that perhaps it was one of these messengers. But what we know, it was sent to harass him, to keep him from being prideful with his encounters with the Lord as if he didn't have enough going on already. So let's stop for a minute and take stock of where we are. Indeed, if someone has a right and a claim to feel like this bricklayer, it's Paul. His resume is pretty strong. He was beaten, he was harassed, he was left for dead, and he he had this constant pain to keep him from being conceited. So what we ask now is how did he respond How did he respond to all this, and how should we respond? And somehow, it's our answer when the inevitabilities of life hit us a lot of times in rapid succession. Look at verse 8. He says, three times, talking about this, this, uh, this thorn, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me. Lord, take this away from me. But he said to me, And that word said is in the tense, saying that each time he repeatedly said, or he said it once so that it would carry through for the duration of his life, 
He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So how did Paul respond? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, because of the sufficiency of the grace of God, then I am strong. My grace is sufficient for you. Those are Jesus' words. My grace is sufficient for you. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content. What is that secret? Secret? Perhaps it is that in any and all situations, my grace is sufficient for you. Every believer, every child of God is constantly buttressed by the all-sufficient grace of God. So for the rest of our time, as we think about our lives, I want to break down this phrase. I want us to think about what does that word grace really mean? And then what does it mean to say that his grace is sufficient? And then thirdly, how can we apply his grace or what can we do? How can we build the forms around our lives so that God can fill them with his grace? My grace. You know, the word grace is used anywhere from 155 to 170 times in the New Testament, depending on the nuances and and, and things like that. Used also in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word for grace is the word chesed. Chesed. And that word means loving kindness and deliverance. And in the New Testament, the word for grace is charis. And the basic meaning is the word favor. Undeserved favor. When I was a junior in college, I had to leave early, a few days early, in order to go on a mission trip. And so that meant I had to take my final exams early. And when you're in that situation, you don't really know how the professor is going to respond. Some might agree to it, some might not agree to it. I remember going to my law professor, my business law professor, and I said, you know, I'm leaving early. If If you will allow me, I'm leaving early because I have to be on this mission trip. May I take my final early? Didn't know what he's going to say. And he said to me, we'll take care of you, Mr. Carstens. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. Don't worry. We'll take care of you. See, I had the favor of my professor. I had the favor of the one with the power and the authority and the ability. He was the grade giver and he was going to take care of me. That is favor. And it actually made me want to do even better on the final exam. And it's the same way with the Lord. When we go to the Lord, when we, when we are a child of God, when we are a believer, then we can go at any time we have a relationship with the one who has the power and the ability and authority, the one who is the grade giver, The one who took care of us when none of us have a passing grade by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins, we walk in the favor of the Lord. That's what grace means. It means the favor or the benefit that's freely and generously and abundantly given by God, our Father. Another word is the word approval. Do you know that no matter what you do as a believer, you walk in the general umbrella of the approval of God? 
There might be some things that we do that he doesn't approve of. But yet overall, we walk in his approval and his undeserved favor. A child of God is forever surrounded by the immeasurable favor of God because he, God, has freely set his affection and his favor on them. That's why grace is so amazing. Let me share just a couple of brief theological points. Who is the source of this grace? Well, in John chapter 1, 14, we get the answer, and it's Jesus. He is the source of God's grace to us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16, it says, For in His fullness we have received grace upon grace. Jesus is the source of that grace. And isn't it interesting that Paul is talking during this personal audience to Jesus and Jesus responds by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. The benefit of God's grace begins with the believer in salvation. We talk about his saving grace. Ephesians chapter 2 says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Why would God do that? Why would God care about man, the great and mighty sovereign, all-powerful God, creator of the universe? Why would he even care about us? Why would he even bother? But he does, especially showing affection upon his children. If you continue in that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, we get a bit of an answer on why would God do this. It says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That one of the reasons he calls us to himself is so that he could show us the riches, the abundance of his favor and his approval. That's so foreign to a lot of our thinking. There's something special about this grace. John MacArthur defines it this way. He says, grace is a dynamic force, a dynamic and benevolent power that applies the goodness of God and the resources of God to our lives. All of God's good favors to his children are given through the means of his benevolent goodness called grace. Are you glad that you are in and that you always will be in the approval in favor of God by being virtue by virtue of being one of his children that's his grace and secondly he says my grace is sufficient or my grace is enough that's what that word means my grace is enough for every situation you know the bible says jesus says my grace is sufficient for the day philippians 4:19 says my god will supply our needs according to his riches and glory. In other words, it's enough. His grace is adequate. His grace is satisfactory. His grace is complete. His grace is full. It is enough. Picture two water fountains. Another day, late in the afternoon, and I came upon one of those uh, water coolers. Uh, picture two water coolers. And, and so I put my, pulled my uh, little snow cone cup and punched the rubber knob at the spout so the water would come out, drip drip, drip. 
So I tried to tilt it, and that didn't work. I tried to slosh it back and forth to somehow get that water up to the spout, and then it would come out and not come out, come out, not come out, come out, not. It wasn't sufficient. There wasn't enough. And I didn't need that much. I only needed two or three of those little cups, and then I would have, that would have been enough. I would have been satisfied. That would have been sufficient, but it wasn't enough. God's grace would be like a 10,000-gallon water tower filled with ice-cold water with a spout coming down to that little rubber knob so that when you push it, that water comes gushing out until you've had enough. Sometimes I listen to sports talk, and they'll be talking about a ball game like the Grizzlies, and then they'll be playing the Pacers or Golden State, and they talk about this thing called the over and under. And I guess what that means on total points, I guess what that means is you figure out what you think the total points are going to be scored uh, in the game, and if you want to bet, you can bet they're going to score more or they're going to less score less. God's grace is always over. God's grace is infinity, infinity and beyond over. God's grace is enough. It's sufficient enough for the Apostle Paul not just to get by, but to bear up with power under the weight that he was going through. My grace is sufficient. So then thirdly, how do we experience the grace and sufficiency of God? How do we experience it with power and peace and contentment? I'm going to mention four ways. Four ways that we can build those forms so that he could fill them with grace. And he even helps us as we build the forms. The first one is this. Go to God in humility. Approach God in humility, not in rationalization and pride. You know, when a person is a believer, they can always, at any time, according to Hebrews, with confidence approach the throne of grace. It's because there they find favor with God. And you know, when you, when, when you study 2 Corinthians, and we've been studying it in our Sunday school class, Paul was it seems like, was, was kind of getting towards the end of his rope. You know, he had, with the Corinthians, he had, this is kind of one of the last efforts. You know, he had started the church. He had loved those Corinthians with his life, in spite of the trials and the torment that he went through, and they weren't loving him back. And they weren't doing well. They're listening to these false apostles, these super apostles with their slick teaching, teaching and they were trying to follow them. So he had come to them more than once, he had written them. He had sent others to try to straighten things out. And these false teachers were making it so hard that it seemed like there was little else that he could do. So he cried out to Jesus, help me. I don't know very much, but it seems from my experience in walking with others and talking with others and in hard times that suffering and trials can be a very humbling, helpless thing. You know, when we're suffering, we can feel weak and we can feel powerless. And there are those times we, can go, we have nowhere else to go but to go to God in prayer, crying out for a grace to endure. And somehow, as we hang in there, this grace becomes a source of power in our lives. What's that, what's that saying? When, when you find out that Jesus is all you have, then you realize that he's all you need or something like that. Three times Paul went to Jesus and asked him to remove this humbling, 
harassing stake. And each time the answer was the same. And the answer was not more instructions. The answer was not an explanation. The answer was a promise. My grace is sufficient for you because you see, my power is not made complete in your strength, but it's made complete right where you are now in your weakness, in your longing, in your gaps. Go to God. Go to God in humility. And you will be on your way to experiencing His grace. Doesn't mean you'll be happy, but you'll be in the right place. Peace and contentment. Second one is this. Simple word, powerful word. The word is yield. Yield to the word of God. You see an 18-wheeler barreling down 385 and you're on the entrance ramp so that you can get on the highway. Well, what are you going to do? Well, if you're logical and you're thoughtful and you're smart, you're going to let that powerful 18-wheeler pass by and you're going to yield to it. That's kind of what the idea is. That's a good thing to do. Well, what does it mean then? What does it mean to yield to the Word of God? Well, it means to rely on His Word for power and for protection and for provision. It means to place yourself in faith and confidence under the authority of the Word of God. God says it, and with His help, I'm going to believe it and I'm going to live it. So the first thing would be to go to God in humility, and the second thing would be to yield. Yield to the authority of the Word of God. Third one is this. Live a life that involves giving away your faith. You know, Acts is a story of what was going on in the development of the first century church. And in Acts chapter 4, we read this. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were giving away the gospel. They were oriented, orientated towards that, giving away the gospel. And it says, and great grace was upon them, giving away their faith. Now, here's the thing. You know, you can, or we can pray for success and that's good. We can pray for a problem maybe and how to solve it, and that's good. We can pray for a medical issue and that the doctors would know what to do and that you would be healed and you would be made well, and that's good. You can even pray for your team to win if you want, and that's, that's okay. They just might. You see, we can pray for a lot of things. We can do, for, do a lot of things, I and mean, we really should, and I'm certainly not discounting that, but also there's times when people can be just as successful without praying. Doctors can heal people. Our teams can win. Uh, uh, we, can at, uh, we can have success even when we haven't prayed about it. But when we give away our faith, it's a whole different realm. We're in the realm of life where only God can succeed because, you see, we, we can't save anyone. We can't make the joy of believing real in anybody's life. Only God can grant His saving grace. So when we give away our faith, the result, the success, can only come from the Lord. So he is the only one who gets the credit. Go to God, yield to the authority of his word, and give away your faith. And finally, a fourth way to experience the grace of God is this. Show grace to other people. Do you... uh, 
live your life with an orientation of grace towards other people? Do you treat other people with favor? I mean, if you're like me, unfortunately, it's easy to do with our friends and with our family and with the people that we care about or even people that we admire. It's easy to extend favor to them. But what about people who aren't like us? Or what about people who might offend us? What about people that we might have a hard time getting along with? Are we fed up with? Are we mad at? Are are, are people that might be so bad that you're tempted to throw stones at them for one reason or another, and in your mind you can't help but think, boy, I hope they get their day. I hope they get their reckoning. What about those people? It's more difficult to show favor to them. And yet God calls us to that. Love your enemies. Many of us know Charles Spurgeon. He was a great preacher in the mid to late 1800s in England. Had a huge church. And one of his contemporaries there was Joseph Parker. He also had a large church during the same time period uh, in London. And Spurgeon had started an orphanage that was very important to him. Spurgeon also was a guy with, with a temper. And one day, Joseph Parker made the comment that the children who came to Spurgeon's orphanage were often dirty and poorly clothed. Just when they got there, they were dirty and poorly clothed. Well, when Spurgeon heard this, he became incensed at Parker, thinking that Parker was criticizing this orphanage that he had worked so hard to establish and was so special to him. So the next time it came, that Spurgeon got the opportunity, he blasted Parker, and it became the talk of the town. The newspapers were writing articles about it. Uh, the, the, the townsfolk were abuzz because they're wondering, how's Parker going to respond? Now it's his turn. Oh, it's going to be a big deal. And so Sunday came, and Parker's church was crowded. It was packed with newspeople and townspeople. And bets were even made by non-churchgoers on how Parker was going to respond. Oh, it was going to be good. Well, Sunday came, and that church was packed, and Parker got up, and he went to the pulpit, and he quietly cleared his throat, and he said, Brother Spurgeon is sick today, and he cannot preach. And this is the day when he takes up an offering for his orphans. May I suggest that we take up offering for him in our church? For he's doing a great work. And I know all of us would like to have a part in it. Well, the crowd was delighted. So delighted that they had to pass the plate around and empty it on three different times. Well, on Tuesday morning, there's a knock at Parker's study. And guess who it was? It was Charles Spurgeon. Throwing his arms around Parker, he said, You know, Parker... You have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved, but you have given me what I needed. Show grace to others. You know, in today's political culture and political scene, the culture we live in with news reporting, with Twitter, with all of that, we we, we can get a lot of opinions and we can form a lot of opinions, a lot of times not even knowing all the facts. And many of those opinions are lacking in grace. We live in a culture that lacks grace. Seek with God's help to live a life oriented to favoring others. I mean, you know how you feel when someone shows grace to you. We all need to learn how to do that better, don't we? So those are the four ways where you can experience the grace of God, to to go to God in humility, to yield, to live a life where you're giving away your faith, and then finally to show grace to other people. So let's wind this thing up. Here it is. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
You see, we've been treated to an undeserved life. It's a life lived in favor, in the favor of our sovereign creator, the one we call Father. Perhaps the secret of contentment that Paul did learn in Philippians chapter 4, he learned it by repeatedly resting in this promise in every situation. So here's the question. Is God's active favor in your life sufficient? When you feel like that bricklayer and you're looking up at that barrel that's 10 stories above you, when you're trying to make sense of everything, when you're trying to gain some peace, can you say in your heart, God's grace is sufficient for me? In spite of what we have going on, can we say, I am glad I have his favor, and that is enough for me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for the opportunity, even in trials and difficult situations, to live in the sufficiency of your grace. And I pray for us, Lord, because we need the strength to do that. Father, may we experience your grace through the things that we go through in a way that leads us to be glad, most importantly, that we have your grace and that it is enough for us. For it is in your Son's name we pray. Amen.